2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. And here's what's ahead of us. We've got stocks rallying and bonds rallying and gold and silver rallying. Oh, and Bitcoin, too. How can that be? We're going to look at the common denominator that's driving everything higher these days. And speaking of sizzling, the solar stocks are also on fire this year. Some are more than tripling. We're gonna talk about what's behind that run and whether it can continue. Plus pizza power spot on and Google wants employees to stay home and take a vacation. It's all ahead in rapid fire today, but we do begin with the markets. Dom Chu is back with the numbers. Hi. Alright so
3: Kelly I could take a vacation as well and maybe eat you more pizza. Had- I just had one I know this but it was because I had a kid so I don't know if it's vacation or not. Anyway Kelly it is predominantly green on the screen so far. The modest gains are carrying over into the afternoon session. But you can see here near half a percent gains for the Dow industrials and the S&P 500. But outperformance from the recently underperforming Nasdaq composite, we want to circle that because this is going to be a key index to watch this week when a lot of those big tech companies report their earnings results. Remember, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet all reporting their results after Thursday's closing bell. It's going to be a big week for technology earnings. It's already been a m- ridiculously good week for gold prices. Look at that. Over the last 10 years, the last record high that we saw for gold was here, $1,923 an ounce. It got as low as ten forty-five over the last 10 years. And here we are again. 1941, the last trade there. So a big gold star for gold prices. That trade's still predominantly moving to the upside along with silver. Watch those miners as well. And to end on a couple of stock-specific stories here. Hasbro, the worst performing stock in the S&P, off 8% after earnings and sales disappointed earlier this morning. Meanwhile, you've got Tapestry. It's off at session highs, but still up 1% after analysts at like Goldman upgraded that stock. They like their strong balance sheet, among other things, as well as, Kelly, controlled promotionality. Look at those words. Back over to you.
2: Well, Dom, I stand corrected because paternity leave is no vacation. No. (laughs) Welcome back. Let's get to D.C. now where Republicans are hammering out what their proposed next round of stimulus is going to look like. It will likely include another round of checks to households and reportedly the extra six hundred dollar unemployment benefit will be trimmed to about two hundred. Kayla Tausche joins us now with the latest. Kayla.
4: Hey, Kelly, later today, Republicans are expected to unveil a series of bills with protections for manufacturing, supply chains, business liability and financial relief as the pandemic lingers on. On that part of the bill that we are going to see, expect twelve hundred dollar stimulus checks for individuals, one hundred and five billion dollars in funding for schools, prioritizing those that do in-person learning and two hundred dollars a week in enhanced unemployment benefits that is lowered from the existing $600 $600 weekly benefit that unemployed Americans have been receiving under the CARES Act since March. Now, Democrats have been on a, on the attack for that smaller amount, which a Treasury official confirms to CNBC. Senator Ron Wyden, citing the Economic Policy Institute, suggests that that alone will cost 3.4 million jobs and tweeting that if Republicans believe that $200 is enough, they should try living on that amount, to which a spokesman for Senator Chuck Grassley, the Republican chair of the Senate Finance Committee, tweeted this in response, calling that statement misleading because the amount is on top of state benefits and pointing out the Democrats in the last crisis expanded unemployment benefits by just twenty five dollars. A week. So certainly there is going to be a lot of uh, mudslinging as the Republicans, after having agreed amongst themselves, try to fashion this into a bipartisan agreement. Their package is going to be roughly one trillion dollars. Democrats are eyeing three trillion dollars. So there's a lot of ground to make up here, Kelly. We'll see what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell event- unveils when he's expected to speak on the Senate floor at 4:30 this afternoon. And Kayla, Kelly? I know
2: we asked you a little bit about this last week, but as this becomes more clear, what do you think timing looks like for a final? agreement and then you know for people who are worried about that unemployment benefit or wondering when that check to households might go out what kind of time frame do you think we're looking at
4: well, already, Kelly, this is the last week that unemployed Americans will be receiving that $600 a week expansion uh, for a time period ended last week. 49 out of 50 states uh, actually had that benefit end the week of July 26. So already uh, there's going to be a significant change to the bottom lines of, of many Americans who find themselves unemployed. The Treasury Secretary has said that he intends to reach an agreement by July 31st. Both chambers of Congress have an interest in getting this done as soon as possible. Possible. The question is really whether they can find agreement, how quickly and then how quickly they can get this legislation actually drafted when pen meets the paper.
2: Right. Absolutely. Kayla, thanks. Kayla Tashi with the latest on that for us. Well, it's been hard to keep these markets down lately. Stocks are back in the green today and about to post their fourth straight month of gains. At the same time, gold just hit a fresh intraday high, as Dom was talking about. Silver is at its highest level in nearly seven years. And bonds are rallying, too. Treasury yields are sitting just about at record lows. Is there a common thread driving all of these asset prices higher, Bitcoin included? For more, let's welcome in Julie Fox, Managing Director for UBS Northeast Private Wealth Management. And Barry Knapp is Managing Partner and Director of Research at Ironside's Macroeconomics. It's great to have you guys both here. So, Barry, I'll I'll turn to you first. What is the common thread here?
5: The common thread is it's actually quite similar to what happened at the beginning of the last business cycle, where Pardon me. We just had this fantastic amount of stimulus thrown into the system, um, both on a monetary and fiscal basis. But the big difference between this cycle and last cycle is last cycle, we first of all, we had regulatory and monetary policy working at cross purposes. So I I recall actually uh, being at Barclays in those days where we would have meetings with the monetary policy arms. And they would ask us why aren't you lending the reserves and the regulators would ask us why don't you have 30 days of liquidity so that regulatory break on the velocity of money really meant that a lot of that cash that was pumped into the system didn't get utilized Additionally, the household sector was deleveraging so that impacted the demand right. for credit and the like but this cycle is very different it's not a financial cycle Credit is expanding. Bank asset growth has been well over $2 trillion this year. So it is likely that things like the BIS credit gap, which is a pretty good measure of the velocity of money, is going to continue to improve and expand, and that money will get pushed out into the system, and it will not be a deflationary or disinflationary cycle. That was Reinhardt and Rogoff. Uh, One of their most profound findings that people ignored was, 10 years after a financial crisis, you still have disinflation. Yeah, this is yeah. a financial crisis.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. So it, basically, Julie, it's, uh, you know, it's the Fed on steroids. It's a Fed on steroids without, you know, the fiscal piece of this working against it. It's it's you know monetary policy. And, and we've heard this argument time and again. So what does that suggest to you? Does it suggest that investors who are looking at any one of these asset classes can basically count on prices going higher?
6: Well, I think what you've seen is, you know, really a common thread here is that there's a lot of uncertainty over the economic outlook. And what the market is pricing in is really a V-shaped recovery. And you really have the the tale of two stories where um, investors are trying to have their cake and eat it, too. And those who are more optimistic have really looked at things like uh, stay at home and and benefited from tech stocks. And then those who are more pessimistic have looked at uh, doing some things in their portfolios more to hedge, like gold. And so I think that's why you really have seen... uh, Um, You know, such high prices in tech and then such high prices
2: in in gold, like you were saying, uh, as well. Right. And sometimes we look at gold and we say, hey, you know, this is a warning sign. And we look at Bitcoin and we say, you know, this is supposed to perform at a time. But they're all behaving with, you know, like normal asset uh, classes. They all sold off at the same time in the heart of the pandemic. They're all rallying together now, Julie. What do you make of the dollar's weakness? Should we expect that to continue? And at any point, does it become, you know, too weak to stomach?
6: yeah I mean we are uh, somewhat bearish on the dollar and uh, you know think that there's other currencies like the British pound or the Swiss franc for investors that um, are looking to diversify a little bit away from the dollar. I mean we've seen you know substantial support from the Fed and, and pumping a lot of liquidity and, and into into the economy. and I think because of that uh, it could remain a little bit weak in the in the near future.
2: So, Barry, finally, then, I mean, we, we talk about the retail interest in this market, you know, the phenomenon that Robinhood is, the fact that, you know, people out there joking that no matter what you buy, it's all going up. I mean, in a way, you're providing kind of the fundamental justification for stocks to continue to go up. So obviously something that's, you know, in its own little bubble, we're not saying that continues. But at what point does this period of rising asset prices give way to some other period where there's more differentiation?
5: Well, I, I actually, you know, have been bullish from the lows, but think that once we get through earnings season, we're likely to have a more sustained pullback or period of consolidation as a consequence of election-related uncertainty, the the potential for much higher taxes. So I think we'll struggle through, you know, typical vol season, but um, there is a lot of differentiation in the market and. Um, You know, Kelly, one final point I would make about that dollar weakness that's that's really important here, and most people aren't really focusing on this. There's been a lot of work from places like the BIS over the last 10 years that the vast majority of trade credit now is conducted in U.S. dollars, which means for a place like Mexico, if the dollar goes up or the Mexican peso goes down, that doesn't really benefit them because they can't get the credit to produce the goods to be able to sell them. Hmm. So Mexico actually benefits from a stronger peso, and that will boost their exports. So other places, you know, gold is kind of going a little off the trend line and not quite parabolic, but I would look at places like Mexico and Brazil and those equity markets, because they could really benefit from a a sharp rebound in global trade. Global trade was weak during the whole trade war. So inventories are low, and there's potential for a sustainable recovery there. That to me is maybe even more interesting than gold. Although I'm long gold for probably the first time in my life. Oh um,
2: man! Uh oh! You know, if Barry naps it on gold, you know, you know, you got, you got to move. And we're almost near 2,000 now, which is crazy. We're gonna talk more about this in a moment. Thank you both for now, Barry, Julie. We appreciate it uh, for all your views on the markets today. We actually just got a record low five-year note auction. Let's bring in Rick Santelli for more on that and the dollar and everything else going on, Rick.
1: Yes, Kelly, you're exactly right. The yield at this five-year Dutch auction, 0.288, which usurps the previous all-time low yield at an auction for five years, which was 0.33. I gave the auction a D plus, just like the last auction. This is the second one today, the two-year. Everything was a bit below average. We're moving the paper. We're getting ready for another historic stimulus package for COVID, and while all this is going on, the numbers keep getting bigger. This $49 billion was the biggest 5-year auction ever. Quickly, uh, 2.32 bid to cover, much lower than the 10 auction average, as was every statistic, whether it was indirects at 58.1, dealers take a larger than expected 29.6. Uh, no matter how you sliced it, it was a below average auction. uh tomorrow be the 7-year, which is going to be at 44 billion in this package. A record $141 billion. And, of course, we, we listened to Barry Knapp just talk about the weaker dollar. And, and indeed, look at a two-day chart down three-quarters of a cent today alone. Yes, the weak dollar index and all this debt is kind of the same story. We'll continue to monitor. Kelly, back to you.
2: Biggest uh, five-year auction ever, the lowest yield ever. No surprise, it was a little weak. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. And let's stick with what's been going on in all these other asset classes. Dig a little deeper into gold right now. We just mentioned it hit a new intraday high today. For the first time since September of 2011, we're talking about it at 1931 this afternoon. announced that is. Will virus concerns, geopolitical tensions, High stock valuations and low treasury yields keep the gold rush going. Our next guest says today's close could give us a clue. We welcome Jim Urio. He's managing director at TJM Institutional Services. Jim, I mean, this is the first time in a while I'm hearing a lot of chatter just from people, just the public talking, saying, what about what's going on with gold? What's going on with silver? Um, So talk us through these moves that you see here.
7: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because the FOMO comes into play at some point too, where everyone everyone looks up and say, "Wait, gold and silver is moving so rapidly. Am I missing out here?" And that probably provides the fuel for the next leg. But you had mentioned a second ago that everything seems to be rallying, and really, what that is is just a function of this weak dollar trade. People are, and when you look at gold and silver, people are questioning the efficacy of fed policy government policy going forward and i think i don't think people think there's going to be some sort of cataclysmic currency crisis oh that's difficult more difficult to say than i thought i don't (laughs) think people are saying that but what i think people are saying is that is that there's a question mark of how far these things can go on thursday night we saw something that was interesting thursday during the day where there was a decoupling because you said that stocks and gold had been rallying together since the lows and they have on thursday Stocks started to head lower and gold started to head higher at the same time. To me, that was a green light to add to some longs because to me it seems like now that gold is almost kind of straddling the free money risk asset class and then potential hedge against fiat currency problems. So I think, again, like I said, I think 1930 is a big deal because it's not just about the fundamental story. We've come a long way since those lows from March and I want to see where the next level buyers are coming from. So I'm mean, looking at that 1930 level in the futures. If we can settle above it, and we've been flirting back and forth with it all day, if we can settle above it, that'll be a shot in the arm, and I think it'll be pretty good.
2: So you're, again, just make sure everyone ca- catches this, you're watching the 1930 level. Usually when we're talking about 1930 lately, it's been Great Depression analogies, but you're literally talking about 1930 an ounce for gold. If we can settle above that, you're saying game on. <laughs> Tell me what kind of upside potential we're talking about. I mean, how much, you know, how How many how much legs do you think this realistically has?
7: Okay, so I don't I don't mean to be one of these guys like gold going to the moon, but realistically when we've shot up so high and we're sitting and we sit above nineteen thirty and we show no signs of a pullback, if that goes to later in the week and we see no signs of a pullback and it's full steam ahead, my next level in the in gold is gonna be twenty five hundred. Now I'm not putting all my legs eggs in one basket on that, as I've told people on Twitter, you know, they've known I've been long silver and I've been long gold for quite a while now. I've actually hedged some of that. I'm still long both. And I think the next move could be significant. But if we if we have a strong week in gold, I don't I think twenty five hundred is relatively reasonable. As crazy as that sounds.
2: Got to move on, Jim. But your bullishness does apply to
7: silver as well. Oh, no doubt about it. I actually am a little slightly more bullish than silver on silver just based on the uh, silver to gold ratio. It's, uh, you know, if it starts to normalize at all, that could put silver in the high 20s relatively quickly.
2: All right. Jim, thank you, sir. Always good to check in with you. We appreciate it. Jim Urio on silver and gold today. Coming up, China closing the US consulate in a tit for tat with Washington that does appear to be escalating. We'll look at why this isn't a battle for world domination per se, but for world determination, what that means. Plus the solar trade is red hot with some names more than tripling in the past three months. We'll look at what's driving that move. And if the sector is about to cool down, the exchange is back after this.
8: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
9: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise – our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back. China retaliating against the closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston by shutting down the U.S. consulate in Chengdu and taking control of it today. My next guest says the U.S.-China clash has entered perilous new territory. Joining me now is Fred Kemp. He is president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, welcome back. Where do you think this battle leads?
8: Well, I, I think this is going to be decided in decades and not in presidential terms. Uh, but what you have heard last week from Secretary Pompeo's speech at the Nixon Library, and that, was, that followed a uh, speech by uh, Attorney General William Barr, FBI uh, leader Chris Wray, the National Security Advisor O'Brien. So this was a fuselage of speakers, American speakers, really laying down things as a new Cold War with China. But what's wrong about calling it a new Cold War, Kelly, is it looks backwards, and, and this is totally new. The U.S. has never had a peer competitor this capable before across all the realms of competition, technology, economy, political, military. And the Chinese have never had this degree of world power before, so they're going to be making decisions they've never made before. They've gone from 2 percent of global GDP in 1980 to 20 percent last year. No country in history, certainly not in modern history, has ever grown that quickly, and they're They're growing accustomed with power and how to exercise it. And we're going to have to manage the world together. And We just haven't figured out how to do that yet.
2: Yeah, I thought it was very interesting that you say this isn't so much a battle for world domination as it is for world determination. Although you actually still mean world domination, but you're seeing a different kind of way. It's determining the very shape of the world order it's determining whether as you say it's going to be democratic or autocratic it's determining whether there's going to be free speech or not and we've already seen the way those doing business with china play by their rules not ours
8: yeah the uh, the world domination term has been used hyperbolically for many years but no country in history has ever really uh achieved it you can have be a determiner of world events and i'd say the united states with its allies has been that for most of the last 75 years, setting up the rules, uh, the international order, everything from the uh, European Union, the NATO, the Bretton Woods organizations. The real question is, who's going to create the standards and rules for everything from technology to rule and law going forward? Who's going to have the key positions at the uh, international agencies? Uh, Most people don't actually know that the International Monetary Fund, in the bylaws, it says the world's largest economy will be the setting for the headquarters for the International Monetary Fund. That used to be a joke, but at some point China is going to say, well, why is this sitting in Washington, D.C.? Shouldn't it be in China? These are the issues that are going to come up, and that's what I mean uh, by world determination. because yeah. You're not going to dominate the world, but you can determine a lot of outcomes, and they could be determined more and more by China in the future.
2: So, Fred, that said, whether it's Trump or Biden in the White House for the next four years, does the U.S. need to purposefully decouple from China? uh, You know, what is the best course of action, especially when so much of our commerce is intertwined?
8: These are the world's two largest economies. And if you just look at Germany, our closest ally, our biggest ally in Europe, its biggest trading partner is China. If you ask Germany to decouple from China, they're just, they're going to say nothing doing. If you ask our uh, Middle East uh, allies who now have China as the biggest recipient of their oil deliveries, they're also going to say nothing doing. And so it seems to me that this decoupling talk will boil down over time to sensitive technologies and other issues. China will selectively choose non-American suppliers for a great many things. So there'll be a voluntarily decoupling from their side, it is already taking place. Yeah. And that's why it's a totally new world, is China grew up in the system, economic system that we with our allies created. They don't want to break it down either. So over time, we're going to have to find a way to live with each other. I think what Secretary Pompeo is saying is we have not uh, called balls and strikes on China. We haven't been uh, tough enough with them on cyber issues, on inter- intellectual property right. issues, on investment. Freedom issues and that we have to be better at that. But what we have to do to make that better is we have to get back together with our allies. And that's what the Trump administration hasn't done effectively enough yet.
2: All right. We'll see if Biden articulates a different course. But the challenge is enormous, especially for a lot of the companies caught in between. Fred, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. And you can read more of Fred's piece on CNBC.com. Fred Kemp with the Atlanta Council. We've got a news alert on the release of Christopher Nolan's movie Tenet. Julia Borston. what's the latest?
10: Warner Brothers is announcing that on August 26th, it will release Nolan's Tenant internationally in over 70 countries, including the UK, Canada, France, and Germany. Then it will open it Labor Day weekend in select U.S. cities as unusual to forego a simultaneous global release for a movie this size. The film costs more than... $200 million to make and is expected to generate about two-thirds of its revenue overseas. In the U.S., Warners is hoping to keep it in theaters for longer than usual as those theaters open up. Now, taking a look at the movie theater chain stocks, Cinemark shares down um, all, all of those uh, stocks down. Cinemark down over 1%, AMC over 3%. IMAX down less than the rest of them, just fractionally. Kelly, back over to you.
2: All right. A lot of people watching this one as a barometer of the reopenings. Julia, thank you with the latest on Tenet. Coming up- up we've got three names reporting this week that have a high track record of beating expectations. We'll tell you who they are. Plus pizza versus burgers. We're going to look at why Papa John's continues to deliver while McDonald's can't find its groove. And remember you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple.
11: See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
2: Welcome back. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi.
9: Hello, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Garmin says its online systems are now being restored and normal operations are expected to resume over the next few days after they were shut down on Thursday. The navigation company says a cyber attack encrypted some of its systems, making its websites unusable. No word on whether or not Garmin paid a reported $10 million ransom demand. Google is giving employees working from home the option to keep doing so through the end of June. It had been telling workers they should expect to be back in the office by January. And as demand for pizza surges during the pandemic, Papa John's wants to add another 10,000 workers to the 70,000 it already has in North America. This is the second time the restaurant chain has added to its workforce due to the pandemic. Lots of deliveries going on there. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thank you. Earnings for the S&P 500 are expected to show the second quarter,
2: posting the worst annual decline since 2008. But there are a handful of companies reporting this week that have a strong track record of beating expectations. First up, Visa. They report Tuesday after the bell. They've topped street estimates 93% of the time in the past 49 earnings reports. The stock is up nicely for the year, but it is down about 8% from its 52-week high. How about Chipmaker Lamb Research, which has also beaten expectations more than 90% of the time. It's rallied 22% this year, and it's just slightly off its yearly high, it reports on Wednesday. And finally, F5 Networks, which reports tonight, has a history of beating expectations and averages a move of roughly 3% the following day. It's only off about 2% from its 52-week high. For more on this story and for a few more names, head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Coming up, Stevel is betting that one stock will be a streaming success when it reports this week. Google says stay home longer, and companies are telling employees to take a break. Please, that's ahead on Rapid Fire. Plus, is it time to jump into the red-hot solar trade with the stocks nearly tripling this year in some cases? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It's rapid fire, and joining me are Dom Chu, Kate Rogers, and Brian Sullivan. Welcome, Sully, for this special edition of Rapid Fire. Uh, let's start with some pop and Johns. You just heard the news from Sue; they are looking to hire 10,000 more people. The stock has been on fire this year, up 150 percent. Kate, compare that with McDonald's; it's flat. What's the main difference here? McDonald's should be doing extremely well because of the drive-through, right? And they report earnings today, I think.
0: Uh, yep, tomorrow morning. We are definitely looking forward to that to hear from McDonald's. I think you're really seeing consumers gravitate, as we've been talking about, Kelly, toward delivery and carryout. McDonald's does have a robust drive-through business. About two-thirds of its sales come from the drive-through, but I think people are leaning really heavily right now on delivery. And that's why you've seen not one, but two major hiring announcements from Papa John's throughout the pandemic of hiring at least 10,000 workers. That's a huge number. We've also heard similar hiring announcements. From Domino's and Chipotle, two other outperformers in this sector during this time, once again, as people really tend to gravitate towards these names that have these really robust carryout and delivery systems. One difference, though, between Papa John's and Domino's is that Papa John's does actually work with all of the major aggregators. And Domino's, as we know, does this on its own.
2: Brian, what do you think? Should McDonald's, should all these fast food companies be trying to do more delivery or do you just have to kind of live with the sandbox you're in?
12: I think it's going to go the other direction for McDonald's. I think if I owned a McDonald's franchise, I would say, why do I have a dining room going forward? Mm-hmm. You know, you think my sales aren't down that much. I can hire about one-third the people. I don't have to worry about cleaning the dining room and dealing with all that hassle. I think there's a real risk that you're going to kind to of go to these just drive-through only type restaurants for Mickey D's. By the way, to go on what Kate said, DoorDash says that pizza delivery was up 1,500%. Wow. So I think that might be part of your answer.
2: How is that possible, Dom? People already get a lot of pizza. I mean, but I do think that Sully makes a great point about the future of the dining room and and how bright it is. All
3: right, so here's what I will do. I'm I'm going to, because we we strive for balance here on Rapid Fire, right? (laughs) I'm going to give you the alternative view to that. I'm going to try. Here's what I would say. Personally, I have ordered a (laughs) lot more pizza from the likes of Domino's. The only reason why I don't go to Papa John's is because the closest one to me is about a 20-minute drive away. So that's the reason why I use Domino's. Here's what I would tell you, though. There are so many people in my town that are going out. And and I live in a state, by the way, that still has outdoor dining and certain limited indoor dining options. So that's one thing. The other thing here, too, is there are a lot of folks out there who are dying to go out there and have people serve them a food or a drink. Now, now the reason why but I'm that saying that doesn't this, happen at McDonald's. So here's what, it doesn't happen at McDonald's, but there are folks out there who really feel as though one of the senses of normalcy they will have, guys, is to go out and dine out. And if they can do that, restaurants still do want to operate some sort of dining capacity. Whether or not that's fast food or takeout pizza, I don't know. However, I do know that there are folks out there who feel as though, yes, let's get things going and actually get restaurants back up and
2: running the way they should be. I know. Okay. I know you want to get Kelly. I know. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to oh, skip Spotify. Go ahead. No,
0: Quick last point. Uh, McDonald's just paused once again, reopening its dining rooms. Let's not forget that they're taking another pause. They took a three-week pause in the beginning of July. COVID cases are climbing, and as much as people may want to get out there and eat, you know, it's going to be a while before you can actually go and sit in a physical McDonald's dining room and do that.
12: All right. And I'll, yeah, all but any- they probably realize they can make just as much money without the people. That's one of the. It's they're not going to pause just out of social or charitable good.
0: Right. There's a
2: long-term incentive here that they're totally eyeing. I agree um we are going to mention spotify all anyone needs to know their 305 and five dollar price target things of monster podcast it, we, you guys know the story with that one so let's move on talk about what's going on with gold and silver brian i especially want your take here as i mentioned earlier i hear a ton of people who are asking me about gold and silver just kind of your neighbors just people that you encounter and silver especially because it's more accessible price point you know it's in the 20s for the retail investors what do you think about these moves
12: Well, we did it as the RBI and Worldwide Exchange this morning. By the way, silver having its best run since the year after the Brady Bunch went off air, 1975, by the way. Silver's up 95% since the March low. Silver has returned 20% more than the NASDAQ 100. So I guess silver is the new Netflix. I don't (laughs) know. Maybe we need a new acronym with the metals. Listen, at some point, with a couple trillion dollars being thrown around, not just here but globally, you might get inflation. I don't know if we do paper dollar goes down you get the value of hard assets that goes up plus you've got this negative convexity trade big word alert sorry about that with regards to bonds and interest rates being where they are and so if you're a bond manager you probably want to buy some gold or silver to hedge out that negative convexity with regard to interest rates and, and by the way the robin hooders love it the interest yes. in yes. silver slv and gld is like tripled in the last three weeks that should end well
2: well, Dom, that's why, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention.
3: I, I, here's what I would say. I'm not going to use the words convexity or, or concavity in any way, shape, or form <laughs> in this particular part of my, my report here. But I, what I would say is every time you see a massive run-up in precious metals like this in, in, in the ETF era, you've seen a lot more of that happen, as Brian points out, in silver-related assets. Now, some people call it the poor man's gold. But in essence, what you have is a precious metal that's not exactly like gold, but is much cheaper in unit cost per gold. So you look at the ETF. ETFs, like the SLV, that's the ticker that tracks it in the ETF side of things, versus GLD, that's the ticker that tracks gold. For a lot of folks out there, the retail investor tends to look towards some of those cheaper options where they can buy more shares or units. And that might be one of the reasons why experts say silver prices have far outpaced anything that you've seen with gold and certainly with some of the stuff in the stock market. So watch silver as one of those poor man's gold trades. That's the reason why you're seeing that spike up, Kel.
2: One more thing, and I'm going to combine the last two topics. We're going to get this all in here. But Brian, you mentioned inflation being a driver of a lot of what's going on, the weaker dollar, these run-up in asset prices. And, I don't know. I mean, are we ready to have that conversation yet? You know, I mean, are we are we sure we're not going to be talking about the, the battle to stay out of disinflation for three and five and seven and ten years?
12: I don't know. We've been talking about inflation, Kelly, for 10 years. Where's it been? I mean, I don't know. It hasn't been there as well. So I agree with you. I don't think we're ready to have it yet. But we've never seen this kind of global stimulus. Look at the cover of The Economist this week. Free money, basically the world awash of thing. I will add this to Dom's point as well unlike gold, and don't throw the teeth thing at me, gold has no industrial use, silver does. So if we get some sort of a rebound in the global economy, you might need to buy silver as a metal to actually build stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes into things like photovoltaic cells and solar cells and solar panels and stuff like that. So silver actually has a use, gold is just cool to get.
2: I guess. That is true. Uh, All right. Let's talk about Google, Kate, which is now having employees work from home through 2021. They say for roles that are non-essential in the office, the CEO, Sundar Pichai, is saying to workers, uh, we are extending our global voluntary work from home option through June 30th, 2021. Good news, bad news. What do you make of it?
0: You know, it's such an interesting topic. Obviously, we continue to follow companies giving people more time to come back to the office. There's a lot of liability associated with actually going back to the office. So I think there's some of that at play here. What does this do for the future of big cities is something that we continue to look at. And also, what does it do for these employees' salaries? If you decide to move out of a big city, are you going to get some type of a salary adjustment in what you're making because maybe you're moving to a lower cost of living place. I just think that there are so many different factors that are entangled in this really, really interesting. But yeah. I tend to believe that I think people will want to live in cities in the future. Again, like the city will not just go away. Can yeah. you know, We talked about you got, this last week, wait, but you've
2: got a couple critters running around. Okay. <laughs> then we're going we're to yeah. <laughs> have this discussion again. <laughs> but Brian, it's, it's true that it, and people need to be aware of some of the tax rules here now that this has become a really longer term thing. You leave New York State and, you're, and you don't have to work from home, you still owe New York State taxes. My dad talks about this all the time, the convenience tax. You've got to be really careful or you're going to get – you think you're lowering your cost of living? You've got to be really careful.
12: All right, listen, we both live in New Jersey, and, and technically our corporation, not CNBC, but parents are based in New York City, so it's somebody who does his own taxes. I, I completely understand and get that. I think there are – A lot of implications. A huge new partnership for New York report that came out, I think, last week. I dug through it over the weekend because that's all there is to do. Uh, (laughs) And it's terrifying. Some of the numbers, (laughs) the revenue projections, the tax numbers, Metro. the ridership on the subway is still down 87% in New York City. I think this is a challenge unlike any other. One quick thing I will add is that if I was a Google worker and I heard – can you bring up that Sundar Pichai quote? It's like people who don't need to be in the office – You know what I'm going to think? Oh, my God, I need to get to the office because otherwise they're going to think I'm somebody who doesn't need to go to the office, which means maybe they don't need me. You know, I think there's a lot of people who are scared for their jobs right now. No,
2: and that's fair. But, Dom, at at the same time, I mean, we talk about look at what a complete disaster the school system is going to be in the fall. If there were ever a time that people might need a little flexibility to work from home. I mean, this is going to be it.
3: This is a huge perk. Right. And I would say this. A lot of an argument has been made that the covid-19 pandemic has really kind of exacerbated some trends and accelerated trends that were already in play. One of the things that we talk about is whether or not people who have white collar jobs are enabled to work from home more than people who work in non-white collar jobs. The school thing is a big issue here because it then disproportionately affects those people who are able to work from home and still conduct some kind of schooling or online learning or participate in that kind of program. It does not help those who really have to go and leave their homes and go to work somewhere else, like those folks who work at a McDonald's or anywhere else. So if you talk about the education system, I have a a, a healthy passion for this. I'm involved with a nonprofit school as well. This is one of those biggest concerns that we have, this idea that the economy cannot fully get going again if we can't safely deploy some of those children back into certain circumstances where they can be cared for.
12: 48% 48% of first responders have school-aged children. 48%. So you're talking about half, right? I mean, now I'm talking my book, but why can't we just put a plexiglass between the teachers and the students? I mean that sincerely. You can yeah. fly. You can go to restaurants in many places. We're talking about schools being closed in the fall. Nobody wants to get sick. I get it. But put up. A, there's got to be somebody that can figure this out because working class, to Dom's point, working class families, oh, yeah. they're going to get just crushed. And, and some- by the way, virtual learning nobody knows if it works, it's just vanish. I talked to a high school principal, he said half the kids showed up and there's nothing they could do about it.
2: I know, and the, the interesting thing, there are states like Florida where, you know, they're giving some kids in some places the option to go five days a week. This whole thing is super regional. No time to talk about our little our little kicker today, guys. Is going to be the fact that some of these tech companies are begging their workers to take a vacation. So we'll
3: I'll just take a vacation yeah, right now. Gonna say, Somebody tell we'll me, give it. me a vacation.
2: Dom, we'll give you some childcare. You vacation, vacation.
12: Dom. Paternity leave
3: is not vacation. I told Kelly this.
12: <laughs> I'm wearing purple shorts. Does that count? Yeah, that is oh, a vacation. That
2: does count. Very nice, Bry. Very summery. Thank you (laughs) you all today. We really appreciate it. That does it for Rapid Fire. Dominic Chu, Kate Rogers, and Brian Sullivan. Moderna's phase three trial of its COVID vaccine kicks off today. And while the study will include at least 30,000 participants, Moderna and its peers are trying to include key parts of the population. We'll have all those details next. And you are looking live now at Capitol Hill, where we are moments away from Representative John Lewis lying in state in the Capitol Hill rotunda. He's been honored with a motorcade procession throughout Washington, D.C. today. There will be an arrival ceremony in the rotunda beginning shortly after his arrival, after the family is greeted. We'll have much more on this and everything else on the other side of this break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Moderna are climbing today. They're up about 6% after announcing they received an additional $472 million from the government for vaccine development. This is as the first of its phase three trials of a COVID vaccine kicks off today. Dr. Fauci also saying that enrollment in Moderna's trials should be done by the end of the summer. But the process is hitting snags when it comes to re- recruiting diverse enough volunteers. Meg Terrell is here now with that story and why it's so important, Meg.
10: It's tremendously important, Kelly. So we know that more than 100,000 people expressed interest on the NIH database in the vaccine trials just since they posted this website July 8th. But ensuring that the folks who are most uh, at risk of severe disease uh, is a key priority in these trials. Take a look. With asthma, food allergies and a heart condition, 44-year-old Thomas Silvera says he does everything he can to protect his health, including getting vaccines. He says if a vaccine for COVID-19 becomes available, he'll get that too.
3: I will kind of be leaning towards that of getting the vaccination.
10: But he says he knows many in his community may be hesitant, especially to participate in clinical trials before a vaccine is approved.
13: The trust issue is the biggest factor there.
10: That's a key challenge as phase three efficacy trials get underway of the vaccines in the U.S. COVID-19 disproportionately affects communities
9: of color. As we start recruiting for phase three, we really need to be incredibly mindful of reaching out to those communities who are hardest hit to ensure that we are getting individuals who are at heightened risk.
10: The COVID-19 Prevention Network, formed by the National Institutes of Health, is prioritizing communities hardest hit by the disease, essential workers, the elderly, people with other health conditions, and Native American, Latinx, and Black and African American communities. Experts say it requires building trust.
2: This is part of a broader issue of medical mistrust, which is entirely justified as if you go you know, way back, um, J. Marion Sims and his, you know, obstetric trauma and uh, and and terrible abuse of of slave patients, to Henrietta Lacks, to the Tuskegee trials. But but there are, there are others. Um, what happens
1: is this is in the lore.
10: And the early COVID-19 vaccine trials did not include many people of color. Forty of 45 participants in the NIH Moderna Phase One trial were white. While Oxford University, which is partnered with AstraZeneca, noted a limitation of its initial study is that a majority of its participants were white as well.
7: If we're going to make a vaccine that works for all of us, we need to be able to make sure that all of
14: those key populations are included.
10: Doctors leading the trials have this in mind as well.
14: We are uh, going to be reaching out to uh, African American churches and try and enroll in church populations. We're also going to be targeting... Uh, warehouses and factories, meat pl- packing plants, and places where there have been large outbreaks, and uh, where we're more likely to encounter people who are at greater risk.
10: Inclusion experts say starts with health providers.
2: The number one reason Black people and Brown people don't participate in clinical trials is because nobody asks them, and that is a provider issue. If nobody's in- actively including them, they will miss out on something that could be life saving
10: and Kelly Moderna says they are watching this so closely as their phase three trial gets underway. Their chief medical officer told me they are getting regular updates on the enrollment at different clinical trial sites. And if different sites aren't reaching a diverse enough population, they will actually switch uh, their enrollment to other places. So this is something that's going to be very important as all of these trials get underway.
2: It just makes sense. I mean, it would be crazy to have something that wasn't effective on that hardest hit population. Meg, thanks very much for the report. Meg Terrell, we appreciate it. Still ahead, solar stocks are hot this year. The ETF tan is on pace for its best month in more than eight years. A top analyst says there's more room to run next. Welcome back. The at-home trade and the bet on the recovery are taking shape, but there's one story that has gone largely unnoticed. Solar energy, the Invesco solar ETF tan, is hovering near multi-year highs going back to 2015, and the stocks have been soaring. Solar edge is up 86% this year, Enphase is up 136% this year, and Sunrun and Vivint Solar are leading the pack both up over 200%. Are there enough catalysts to keep powering this industry? Joining me now is Colin Rush. He's managing director and senior research analyst at Oppenheimer. Colin, it's weird to have you here and not talk Tesla, but also somewhat refreshing. Tell me what's going on in the solar space. You
13: know, there's, there's a handful of events. First, uh, you know, solar has really come down the cost curve over the last uh, decade-plus. The point where about half the country, it's really economic for uh, folks to to go solar rather than pay their utility electric bills. More importantly, uh, we're seeing uh, energy storage prices come down as uh, electric vehicle uh, capacity ramps up, which means, in our view, about 20% of the country could go off-grid completely uh, with a solar fuel storage system. Now, when we do that analysis, we're assuming a 6% discount rate. Uh, on those cash flows, um, but with lower interest rates, which look like they're going to be here for a little while, you know, we think 4% might be uh, more appropriate, and those numbers bump up to close to 40% on the solar storage. Yeah. And about 7- in the country uh, for uh, just solar alone. You know, so we, it's, it's, it makes sense.
2: we looked into the solar plus storage option and it, it wasn't really viable. I mean, we would have needed multiple uh, power walls or, or some kind of battery in order to truly have enough power to live off of in the case of a shutdown for a few days. You still have to connect to the grid. There's all sorts of rules about going back and forth. But let me put all that aside because I, 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 I mean, obviously we're, we're, society is heading in this direction. None of that, to me, still explains the move this year. I mean, is it simply retail interest? Is it the fact that people are realizing, you know, the Fed is lifting all boats? I mean, we've re- we've really gone up sharply of late.
13: So there's two things that we think have happened here. So one, uh, we think there was a you know lack of understanding around uh, the sector, and there's been an increase of money coming into the space given ESG mandates and, and growth in that space. With environmental PC is really focused on, on growth and, and that being a key part. But really interest rates are incredibly important for uh, for this industry given uh, the, the high leverage to those interest rates. And when you look at the, the biggest lever in the supply chain, it really is your cost of capital. And so as you see loan uh, to value rates go higher, closer to 85% on these systems. And uh, in, uh, interest rates come down, there's, there's an awful lot of leverage. I would actually differ with you in, in terms of the cost structure on, the, on that technology. We can get into that another time. But I do think these are compelling economics with an industry that's um, going to disrupt the utility industry over the next five or ten years.
2: And for many people, they might just be listening to the fact that you said low interest rates equals you know high prices for the solar stocks. And that's just another way to play it. And silver, by the way, which has been rallying sharply, is one of – I mean, this industry is one of its big uh, end users of silver, correct?
13: Uh, not really. I mean, silver's really gotten designed out of all of these uh, all of these designs uh, over, you know, five to seven years ago where there was a silver-based issue, uh, and, and so folks have found new materials, and that's really <laughs> not an issue uh, as a heavy across our cost structure.
2: Well, then we'll tell them to stop barking up that tree. Colin, it is great to have you on. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Colin Rush talking through the moves in solar today. Well, the hearse carrying the casket of Representative John Lewis has arrived at the U.S. Capitol. He will now be taken up the east front stairs of the Capitol into the east front foyer. The casket of the representative will then be escorted by the Senate Majority Leader and by congressional leadership into the Capitol Rotunda. Again, the late Congressman has been honored with a motorcade throughout Washington, D.C. today. His body is now arriving at the Capitol building and being carried up the stairs uh, into that building for the first time. There will be an arrival ceremony after this all takes place. His casket will actually then be moved out for public viewing in the evening. So people who want to stop by and pay respects to Congressman Lewis will be able to do so in a way that's safe uh, during coronavirus because he will be lying outside in the fresh air, 6 to 10 p.m. The casket will be moved out of the rotunda for public viewing. And also all day tomorrow, Uh, the vice president, Mike Pence, uh, and his second lady, Karen, uh, the vice president, Biden, and his wife are all expected to visit the casket tonight. So we will be hearing... Uh, from many of our elected officials and others who want to pay tribute to the life of Congressman John Lewis, who, again, just died at the age of 80 after a six-month battle with cancer. That was in July. Uh, He was a congressman for Georgia's fifth congressional district for more than three decades, seen as the moral conscience of Congress for his commitment to that nonviolent fight for civil rights. And that that will be a big, big part of his legacy remembered uh, throughout the ceremonies today and, and over the next day or so. Kayla Tausche is in Washington as well with more information, Kayla, on this procession and the way his
4: life is being honored and remembered. Well, Kelly, uh, Congressman Lewis was often called the conscience of Congress, this moral authority that he had acquired over many decades of serving in those nonviolent protests and agitating for change that he liked to call good trouble, necessary trouble that sometimes made people uncomfortable but got results. Congressman Lewis will be just the second black lawmaker to lie in state in the Capitol. He will be in the rotunda for just a few hours today. It's one of the many traditions upended by the pandemic. Uh, Later, uh, he will be moved to the plaza outside the Capitol where uh, people can come and pay their respects in a socially distanced way. Outside from 6 to 10 p.m. this evening and then again throughout the day uh, tomorrow. So certainly a different type of reception for a civil rights hero, a longtime congressman who had uh, more than 8,000 pieces of legislation that he sponsored or co-sponsored that resulted in roughly 500 laws of uh, a very many different topics, not just on civil rights. The most recent piece of legislation that he sponsored uh, was for taxpayers to bring more uh, transparency to the IRS and to change some of the IRS's practices of the way that it operates. So certainly a wide-ranging legacy and a congressman from Georgia who served 17 terms uh, will surely be remembered here in Washington and in the state as well and And across the country, Kelly.
2: Kayla, thank you. Bill Griffith is here for Power Lunch. And, Bill, I know that you experienced, you watched his career firsthand.
14: You know, and I think, uh, I don't know if you saw the memorial service over the weekend, his brother and his sister both spoke so eloquently about their brother. And uh, his sister especially said that John was always telling her, if you see something wrong that's wrong, do something. And, and that was the mantra that he lived his whole life, going back to, of course, those heady days of the early days of the civil rights era in the 1960s when he was beaten up, uh, crossing that uh, famous bridge that he made the crossing of yesterday. Uh, he, he was truly a doer. Uh, and to, for him to, to pass away just as we're experiencing yet another uh, major time of civil rights and, and racial equality movement in this country, I think uh, it, it just it, it highlights for us the impact that he had in our country. But there is, he would say it, he'd be the first one to say there was so much more to do.
2: Yeah, You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
11: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.